Welcome to the Let Christie Take It podcast. Let Christie Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, we are joined by John Parr. Parr is a Grammy-nominated English singer, songwriter and multi-instrumentalist who hit it big in the mid-80s with chart-topping singles Naughty Naughty and the iconic St. Elmo's Fire from the 1985 classic movie of the same name. We discussed the inspiration behind the writing of St. Elmo's Fire and how it generated millions for charity. Parr also contributed songs to other films including Three Men and a Baby, Near Dark and The Running Man. John has just released a new drama documentary, Unconquered, which tells the story of two soldiers who were severely injured. It follows their incredible journey out of the darkness through the love of family, the bond of brotherhood and their shared passion for sport. John is still performing concerts and at the release of this episode was preparing for his appearance at the Forever Young Festival in Ireland. Let Christy Take are proud to bring you John Parr. John Parr, welcome to Let Christy Take It. We're delighted to have you on. How are you doing? Very, very, very nice to be here. John, originally from Nottingham. What are Nottingham your well, Sherwood Forest, works up. Yeah. Yeah, works up. But what are your memories of growing up in the land of Robin Hood? Oh man, I mean, uh, well, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks, a place called Manton. It was a pit village. Um, I lived in a little house. Uh, it was very, very cozy. It was uh, a house you got when you worked at the pit. My nana was a widow, so I lived there with my mum and dad and my mum's brother, his wife, and their little baby. It was a three-bedroom house, tin bath, little coal fire. It was, but it was a lot of love. It was so we were there till uh, I was five, and then we moved to the right side of the tracks to a shiny new council house for the next twenty years. And when did you first get interested in music, John? Uh, always. I mean, I used to be in the school playground doing uh, Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, you know, Lonnie Donegan and uh, the Chipmunks and Cliff Richard. I used to do Cliff Richard at the Saturday matinee, you know, and when you were doing talent shows. Uh, and if you won, you got him free. So, so it was just omnipresent from, from the very beginning. You just always yeah, was, you knew it was, but it was a curse. I was I felt cursed. It's a strange thing. I felt cursed with ambition. I really felt uh, different and felt like uh, you know there was something more out there for me. But in my little town, very few people had kind of got out there, you know. So there weren't really any role models, you know. This was the fifties, so um, yeah, it was not. It was an odd one. I was an only child as well. You know, so I kind of psychoanalyzed myself thinking, well, did I want to be loved more? You know, did I want to, you know, I was doing shows in my back garden, inviting kids around and stuff, you know. But John, it's funny, Um, now we were telling people, you know, if you got to believe in yourself, believe in all you can be, and it's it's a good thing. Back in the day, I mean, who's this fellow I think he is? Yeah, there's all that. I mean, I had, I had that from my teachers. I had it from my pals. 
uh, you know, it's, you're just dreaming. You're never going to, you know, you, you, you're never going to do anything. And then um, I remember we, we put a, a band together, two boys from a different school near me. We put a band together and rehearsed and did a few shows. And then we played the school dance. I was 15. And all the teachers and all my mates said, just forget everything we've said to you, man. This is what you should be doing. So it was vindication. Was that the band The Silence? The Silence, it was indeed, yeah. So I, I read somewhere about your dad driving you all over Europe for, for, tour, for a tour, like when you were only 15 or 16. Is that true? Less. We were 12. Uh, my dad, I mean, he had a full-time job, but he managed us. He used to go out with his little diary and get us, you know, bookings at local working men's clubs and British legions. And we used to go in an old army ambulance, you know, little Morris, you know, with the steering wheel that was flat, you know, not up. And uh, he, we did 150,000 miles before I was 15, gigging around mainly England, but my dad at the wheel, sometimes getting in on a Monday morning at 4 a.m. and he'd be off on the work, you know, at 7. He was, you know, he was supportive. Good dad, good support, yeah, man. Yeah, was indeed. <clears throat> John, yourself and the lads cut your teeth in UK working men's clubs. Yeah. Do you think those days toughened you for what was to come in the music industry? Totally. I think, I mean, in those days, people didn't want to hear covers. They just, sorry, they didn't want to hear original songs. They only wanted to hear covers. So you were really judged upon how well you played that guitar solo from an Eagles record or a Beatles record and how near the record you got. So it was great because you got to learn the craft of how those songs were written, how they were performed. And, uh, you know, I mean, I played some places where if you weren't any good, they'd throw bottles at you. You know, it was that, you know. And I, I always say there's a place down the road from me, quite a tough town called Stainforth. And I've always said if you can play Stainforth Democratic Club and survive, you can do Madison Square Garden, no problem. <laughs> I've done both. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. which you've done, yeah. <laughs> and, John, the music industry is notoriously difficult and you're, you were well-motivated. What kept you going? And obviously there was knockbacks on the way. What kept you with that vision in mind? I'm going to get there. It's a funny thing, life, isn't it? You know, it's like, I mean, I go through my life. I'm always looking for a sign to tell me I'm on the right road. And just every now and again, somebody said something, a kind word, or we've gone down great. It kept going. But I mean, even after that school concert at 15, I never broke through until I was 32. So I had it, you know, had an, you know, another twice as long, uh, and I felt ready. I really felt ready musically. I was ready. Um, I always had an old head on young shoulders. I think it's because I spent so much time with my father, and you know, he'd have a lot of kind of in-depth adult talks with me, even as a young teenager. So um, it was that he was in the military, you know, that kind of just keep going, keep going. And towards the end, in the late 70s, uh, the truck blew up for the last time, and so did the band. And I was married. My wife said, um, look, I'll pay the bills. She had a good job. You just, you know, write songs, and I'll support you while, you know, while it happens. So that was the next three years, kind of 80 to 83, writing songs. I got a little tiny publishing contract. 500 quid but they were quite a big label and they used to pay 100 quid for my demos so that meant at least i could get songs out there and that was it you know it was it was my dad my wife my friends you know and the crowds 
You know, that was the thing. You know what it's like if you play, that's your measure if you're doing anything right in front of an audience. So I always thought, well, I'm measuring it every night. I'm now, I, I know I'm ready, I'm whatever, you know. And at that point, I was slipping a few of my own songs in and people were asking for them. So I thought, yeah, I'm going on the right road, you know. John, then one day your phone rang and it turns out to be Meatloaf. How did that happen? That was that little publishing company. They sent all my stuff. They sent some to Diana Ross, Rod Stewart, people like that. They were aiming high and they sent some of my songs to Meatloaf. And um, he called me, just called me out of the blue. And I thought it was a joke. <laughs> hey, John, Meatloaf here. Meat here. He calls, calls himself Meat. Uh, I'd like you to come up to Newcastle. He was playing Newcastle City Hall, and uh, it was the following week. So I went in the studio. I'd got a little, so I built a little studio, and of course, Carlin, Carlin, the publishers were paying the bill. So um, I wrote three songs that were in the Meatloaf, well, in the Jim Steinman style, and I could impersonate Meatloaf pretty well. So when I went up to Newcastle, I went up there with a cassette with three new songs that sounded like Meatloaf. And we met, and it was very brief. And I thought, well, that's the last, last I'll hear it from him. And he rang me the next day, and he said, uh, I want you to come out to stay with me in Connecticut. I'm making a new record. Stay with me and my family, and uh, let's go. And Brilliant. that was the beginning. Brilliant. And was there any pressure following the success he'd had with Steinman that, that you were going to be coming in writing the songs? Did you feel any pressure from that? Yeah, it was massive. It was massive because obviously within the Meatloaf band, uh, there were already writers and people were, Jim Steinman was now out of the picture. Meatloaf was really looking for a new Steinman. And they're very unusual, those Jim Steinman songs. They can be four and five part songs. They're very different, you know, and I've kind of studied it. Whereas the stuff that the band members were writing were really good songs, but they weren't in that Meatloaf style to me. So there was that pressure. Um, and then the big pressure was that my manager, I'd got a manager by then, he, he'd been with The Who for 30 years. He started as Keith Moon's driver, and then he'd worked his way up. He became their road manager and then managed some of their companies. And when they broke, when Keith died, they broke up. He was looking for something new. And he went to that publishers and said, is there anybody I should be listening to? They gave him, like I said, almost simultaneously. And so he and Meatloaf were like these two horses pulling uh, forward but in different directions so I kind of uh, got a record deal in I went with Meatloaf late 83 and I had a record deal in 84 and in 85 bang you know it was yeah. all rocking and John was there a sense of validation for all your hard work when you finally got that deal there was there was but uh, you know I think when you've lived I mean I was, I was in my 30s then and, and you know you recognise well, maybe I didn't, you know, it's like what battles you fight and what battles you just let roll, you know. And um, I was with Atlantic Records and I was signed by Ahmed Erdogan, the, the late great Ahmed, uh, 
that had signed Aretha and had signed, you know, the Stones and Zeppelin. And he said to me, I see you as our rock and roll, uh, new rock and roller. And so they, they, I'd, I'd recorded the stuff. I was fairly, fairly versed as a producer. But they said, well, we're going to put you with this other producer to do, to do your new record. And, um, you know, we know you can do it, but it's an insurance policy. So they put me with this guy, and it just wasn't – in truth, he didn't do anything. He just sat shotgun and uh, watched what was going on. And um, I was looking for somebody to have real input. Anyway, in the end, Atlantic said, look, you know, uh, we like this record. Take these three or four songs off it. Here's some more money. You just go and produce the whole record. So I went away and did the whole thing. And um, it started then. They wanted to release – a song called Magical that I'd written with Meatloaf. And my whole modus operandi was to release a song called Naughty Naughty. I knew I'd made it in such a way that it was really produced very differently, sounded different, but was still rock and roll. And I wanted a record that would make you pull over and stop the car and listen. That was, And I knew that was the only song on the album. So that was my first pressure thing. And... And they swallowed it. Atlantic put it out, but they didn't go for it. They didn't put the hammer down. And it was nearly Christmas. And everybody and their wife had a record out at Christmas in America. And it was Prince and Bruce Springsteen and everybody in that 84, 85 chart. So my record bubbled around forever. And it was like being in the trenches. I was every, I did 30 city, not even playing, just meeting radio people and what what they call one-stops. They were the people that mailed out your records and just everybody that was anything to do with a record. And it, I think it stood me in good stead and got a lot of goodwill and Naughty Naughty just went gangbusters on on rock radio. But because it had been out there so long, you know what the, the pop charts are like, uh, it's getting all your eggs in that basket in that time frame. So yeah. I think we got in the low 20s, 23, I think, in the billboard. But had we had it, you know, all at once, we'd have been number one. It was so that was the beginning of the pressure and yeah. it continued to be truthful. So it sounded like you knew that that song was the song for the album. And you know the weirdest thing? It wasn't even written when we when um, when we were recording the album. It was just a riff we used to warm up with. And then we were in Miami. We, we rehearsed at a lady's studio for a couple of weeks before we went in the big studio. And uh, we'd just warm up with this riff, and then it'd get bigger, bigger, and bigger. And then I kind of saw the light and thought, yeah, it needs it needs to be like you know, a foreigner type record, but with kind of art of noise sounds on it. And Trevor Horn was just kind of coming through with all that. So I knew I needed a record that was kind of that way. And I thought, yeah, I thought, and everybody thought I was nuts. I mean, the band had left the studio, gone back to England, and I'd got Naughty Naughty, which had got 16 bars of clear air, nothing in it. And I could hear all these sounds. And then... Um, J.J. Jexalic came over from The Art of Noise. But I, did, I didn't realise he wasn't a musician, and he came with no – he was just a computer programmer. And fortunately, the Bee Gees, who were in Miami, lent me their Fairlight, and we made we made sounds in the studio, put them on the Fairlight, and that's what became all those sounds in Naughty Naughty. Wow. Well, the way you're true in the Bee Gees, John, you've just made me day. <laughs> John. Lovely voice. Oh, the John. The BJs, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the first support tours you did, John, was with a band, the band Toto. Yeah. 
how did it feel after such a long time being in, in your own band, the confines of a band now out there front and centre as a solo artist? Ben, I can't remember when Toto 4 came out, but this was at the time when my wife was paying the bills and we didn't have a lot of money. So maybe once a month our treat would be to buy an album. And one, one week we bought Toto 4 and I sat on my lounge carpet and I cried. You know, I won't hold you back now. That beautiful song, Steve sings. And uh, I just cried. I just thought, man, I'm 31. My wife's paying the bills. And I could never compete with the magic of these people. It's just they're doing everything I, I dreamed of doing, but better. 18 months later, I'm on tour with them. They're my friends. I'm traveling on the tour bus with them. Six months later, they're playing on my records and we're just pals. It was, uh, it was wonderful. And from meeting Toto day one, they came up as ordinary guys. Hi, I'm David Page. Nice to meet you. I'm Steve Luca. As if I didn't know, you know, it was like <laughs> little old me. And even on the first show, it was like, yeah, well, let's finish our sound check. Good job half an hour too. You know, I was just little old me from from workshop, you know, and, and uh, they just were just wonderful. I can't remember who met who first or who fell in love with who first. All I can remember is the seven of us always together. Well, it's not just infatuation, Kevin. She's not just a girl. She's the only evidence of God that I can find on this entire planet. Where did you meet Wendy again? Prison. <laughs> Hi, Felicia. How you doing? Me? Oh, you know, it ain't easy being me. You know all those nights we stayed up talking? How come you never made a pass at me? I'm gonna get you a red, lacy, baby doll Nike. Alec, I'm very happy in your old pajamas. No, I'm happy when you're out of my old pajamas. <laughs> Alec is becoming a Republican and he wants to get married. Oh my God. Do you ever feel like you're not accomplishing anything at all? <laughs> I think I'm in touch with that emotion. The heat this summer is at St. Elmo's Fire. You're not going to believe how to hand it's going to be. When you got the call from David Foster. Yeah. Right. Were you aware of his pedigree before you when got, I got the call? call <laughs> when I got the call, I was with Toto on the road. So they knew him well because they played loads of sessions for him. But I wasn't fully up to speed. Ironically, another record that I played to death, two records I played to death were Chicago, uh, that one he did, and Earth, Wind and Fire. So this, these records were played in this little, you know, semi in, in Doncaster that my wife and I lived in. And, you know, we, we played those records religiously. And again, this guy rings me up. And uh, I, I really didn't put two and two together. I'm thinking, because you know, sometimes you don't look who produced. I, I, you know, I just love the record. And yeah. so uh, I knew he was very famous, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't too daunting. He was lovely. I went there. I went to the Lighthouse studio in LA, little studio. And he was fried. He just said, uh, great to meet you. Uh, I'm doing this soundtrack album for a movie called St. Elmo's Fire. He said, but I've taken too much on. He said, I've never done a film before. He said, so I've done all the score, but I agreed to do 10 original tracks simultaneously for the movie with all different artists. So I'm sorry, but will you sing this song and not write one? I've asked you here to write one, but I'm too tired. 
And I just said, oh, man, he played me this song and it was it was okay. And I just said, just, please just give me half an hour. Let's just go in the control room. And he went, I'm just burned, man. I can't do it. Anyway, I talked him into it. We went in the control room, little Fender Rhodes in there, and a prototype Lynn drum machine, the first digital drum machine. We wrote a song in about 15 minutes. I went, wow, this is great. He went, we can do better. What did she change? We wrote another song, 10 minutes. I went, wow, he said, we can do better. And the third one would say, how much? We did it well. Probably an hour. And uh, the, the longest bit St. almost took was that beautiful chord, chord change he came up with that takes you out of the key lift and the course back down to the verse. And it's a Beatles chord, one of those Beatles ones. And uh, that was the longest bit. And, of course, uh, the difficulty was the lyric. I just, I couldn't, I, I hadn't seen the film. Fortunately, I hadn't seen the film or read the script. But, uh, but they told me the story and I couldn't get to grips with it. And... Um, Joel Schumacher, the director, came down and he taught me, he'd written it. And then David Foster showed me a video. And we, everybody had gone home. David said, look, we've we got to write this lyric. So David said, look, this has nothing to do with, uh, nothing to do with the movie. But this young kid came in the studio last week. He said he's from Vancouver, which was David's hometown. And he said it, it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And, and I played this little just a local news video of this young guy called Rick Hansen. And he'd broken his back about 18 months earlier in a car crash. And he was rehabilitating and said, it's crazy. You know, you, you break your arm, you break your leg. You're in a plastic cast for eight weeks, but you break your back. You're in a chair for the rest of your life. And I'm going to do something about it. He said, I'm going to get in this wheelchair. I'm going to wheel it around the world. And this little TV thing, you know, this little TV 10-minute thing, shows him pulling out of Vancouver. It's raining. There's about three men and a dog waving him off. Because, you know, A, disability, he didn't know where to look in the 80s, did you? It wasn't Paralympics, never made national television, or if it did, it was way off. So, you know, there was no internet. So it was just this young kid traveling, reckons he's going to do But it was called the Man in Motion Tour. And I got I got the hairs on the back of my neck. I went back to the hotel and I wrote his story. I just wrote every line in that thing is about a guy wheeling a wheelchair around the world. But I knew the record the film company wouldn't swallow it. So I made it ambiguous so that they would think the, the pair of wheels is Demi Moore's Jeep and for once in his life a man has his time is when Emilio gets the girl in the movie. And no, none of it's pertinent to the movie. It's all about Rickens. <laughs> and was there pushback to when you told them, or did you tell them the background to the song? Was there any pushback? The film company. Yeah. There was pushback all around. Even David said to me, look, you're nuts here. This is my first break as a big <laughs> big movie. I love Rick Hansen, but there's no way we can get his stories about the movie. And I went, well, it's too late. And I want to call it Man in Motion as well. <laughs> and he, and we I started singing it. And he went, oh, just let's go for it. And I, I knew. I knew more than I knew with Naughty Naughty. I knew we'd got lightning in the bottle. I was like. I was, when I'm singing it, I, I was wheeling up that mountain. Rick, I was crossing the desert in that wheelchair. That's And that's why that vocal's like it is. I was just, I was him trapped in that chair, you know. Brilliant. And this is the era, John, of videos as well. And you, you film the video and the members of the, the as they were called, the Brat Pack, they uh, yes. turned up for the film. And uh, how aware were you of them and where do you came to do the video? No, I wasn't remotely aware of them. 
So, and they were the hottest darlings of the day because I was just gigging. I mean, I, I'd either been in the studio or I was on the road, so I didn't see TV or it was just wall-to-wall media and whatever for me then. So I went on, and it was a huge movie set. They rebuilt all the movie set, got these young kids down, and they, they did not want to be there. They got their dough and, you know, Rob Lowe and, and Emilio and Demi Moore, they didn't want to be there. And the script, you know, it, I always make a joke, you know, like a script, it says, John John walks down the, the stairs and sees Demi sat at the record player and he walks over to her and cheers her up. Well, walking down the stairs, lip syncing, said I was fine. But we, the funny thing is we became pals. And I even now talk to Rob and uh, I've played gigs with them. I've, uh, Demi's wanted to get up on stage. I've done a couple of shows with, with Rob and we've, we've been doing duetting and stuff. So it's, it, it's funny how life turns. Isn't it is. It? And John, do you know what? If you mention anybody now, St. Elmo's Fire, they would not think of the movie. It would be your no, song that would be front of foremost. Well, I learned that too in life, isn't it? You know, that's that funny thing. You know, you look at the posters and you're like, your name appears just before Dolby Surround or whatever, you know, and <laughs> gradually I remember the posters used to be featuring number one record, you know, and then eventually, you know, I, I think that's the, that's the beauty of it. That I'm, I mean, I think we must be, what, what are we, 37 years later, songs played everywhere in the world and yeah. still, and the good thing for me is people are motivated by it, even though they don't know the story, what's behind it. I think there's that much lightning in a bottle trapped within that recording and those lyrics that were given to us. I mean, I, t I don't take any responsibility for it whatsoever. I'm, I'm a craftsman and I knew I'd been given something and I, I polished that diamond I'd been given, but I was given it. I knew I'd been given it. It's fantastic. Johnny, I, I had it on the car for my kids and I said, I'm going to be interviewing this singer, John Parrott. They said, that's a great song. So it still has appeal. Do you know what's really weird? Of late, it's been featured in some very big teen movies. It was in uh, uh, Deadpool, and it was in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And, and there's this whole flock of young people that obviously never listen to those radio stations that play my kind of songs from then. And so it's the first time. And so there's no preconception. They just go, love it. I love it. Or they hate it, whatever. But you you haven't got any kind of, oh, it's this old guy from the 80s. It's just, bush, it's right here, right now. Do you like it? And most of them do, you know. John, why do you think it's dead in people's consciousness for almost 40 years? Is it? It's magic in a bottle. It's a damn good tune. Is it all of the above? I think it's all of the above. The thing, I think the thing I got very lucky with was obviously David Foster was on fire. Every person that played on the record was probably in the top three in the world, in their sphere, the guitar, the the drums, you know, the background, everything about it. Umberto Gattica was still with David then, probably the greatest mixer, one of the greatest mixers in the world. So it's all that. And uh, I just come off the road with, with Toto. So I've been screaming my first album for like 30, 40 shows. So I was like, I was like uh, Usain Bolt. I was like, you know, it was inside. So I was at the peak of my powers, really. And uh, I think, so there was that. But then again, you know, there's something that comes, you can call it from the universe, call it from God. That's a story from another day. I, I think it was God-given. I think, you know, we always say gifted. And, I, you know, as I say, you know, anything I have, I've been gifted, but I've worked as a craftsman on it.
can we ask you about Toro Matina Turner? How was that? Uh, that was one of the greatest moments in my life, I would say. I was in Los Angeles. The phone rang, and it was Roger Davis, Tina's manager. He knew my manager, John Wolfe, very well. So I picked the phone up. He went, hey, John. I thought he was. He said, I'm on the tour bus. Tina's just heard St. Elmo's, and she's jumped up and said, I've got to have him for the, for the tour. I went, I think you need to speak to John Wolfe. So I spoke to John. I went, I think the week later, I went to Madison Square Garden. I met Tina. She was fabulous. I didn't know the backstory with Tina. I didn't know all the Ike stuff. I knew she'd been in Ike and Tina Turner. I love Nutbush City Limits, River Deep. But obviously, Private Dancer was brand new, really. Uh, we got on great. And Roger said, look, we want you to do, uh, we're doing the East. We're doing the East Coast for 30 shows. I want you to do the 40 shows that in the Midwest and back to the West Coast. Will you do it? I went, yeah, in a heartbeat. So I did uh, every show, 40 shows, I think, with Tina. I watched every show she did. I'd do my show and um, get changed, wait for the lights to go down, and I'd go out and I'd watch Tina. So I watched The Master 40, 40 times at least, and – she was, you know, she in the world's greatest. She would be in that handful that you could hold, wouldn't she? Oh, as a absolutely. And as a musician, absolutely. You know. And here, John, did you ever give her a bit of stick that you kept her off number one? Yeah, we got this great picture. There's a great picture that they ran in the newspaper, and it's like John Parr number one, Tina Turner number two, John <laughs> Parr, you're fired. And she wrote it on the thing, and there's a picture of her like giving me a, a right hook. You know, but she was, a, she was, and that was We Don't Need Another Hero as well. It was a big song, yeah. huge movie, Mad Max. You know, it was like, and she was in, she was in it, of course. You know? Oh, she in Mad Max. She, she is. Mad Max three, yeah. 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 She was Mad in Max Thunder Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. 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 But I mean, yeah. I, I can't speak high enough for Tina. And, you know, again, it's like, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember saying something to her early on. Uh, and I don't think I've ever said this before to publicly. I remember when we'd met and we'd talked to her, and I remember saying to her, you don't have to be Tina Turner around me. I wanted her to be able to be whatever. And she did look at me sideways and nothing more was said, but something made me say it. And when I've obviously read her history later on and all the trouble she's been through and everything, I think I must have felt that, and that was what made me say it. You know, yeah. Because yeah. she did see herself as two people. If she watched a video, it she would talk about it as her. Yeah. It wouldn't be me, you know. She she saw it as she was observing a a, a persona that she would adopt, you know. Wow. Yeah. Uh, John, for the, for, for the research that we did for the interview, we came across a great story that you told um, about you dyeing your hair with a box of matches for a gig with Roger Daltrey. We would love you to tell that story. So I was in... I went premature. I, I dyed my hair for this show, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then we I, tell you we don't use the video, John. I was wondering uh, why you looked disappointed. I can send you a bottle. I'll send you a bottle. Um, so my dad was prematurely grey. So I was going grey in my late 20s. And um, so, but it had to be special dye. Right? It used to go a bit, uh, what we used to say, Frankie out. Can you remember Frankie out? It always looked a bit ginger. I said, <laughs> if you dyed your hair, it looked a bit Frankie out. And, um, I couldn't find anything and I got the call and it was like, I'd written a song for Roger Daltrey called Under a Raging Moon. And obviously because Roger knew my manager, he said, Roger said, will John come sing it with me at Madison Square Garden? 
in two days. No rehearsal, nothing. It was like, go. And I looked in the mirror, and I should have been flying home. I was, I was in New York, and I was really great. My sideburns were like Stuart Granger. You know? <laughs> so I thought, what am I going to do? So I got some matches. I lit the matches, made the carbon this day, and I put them in a, in a saucer, and I just dipped my fingers in, and I, I did all my gray bits with the black off the matches. And so it looked okay. And I went to Madison Square Garden, and it was the first time I met Roger. And I walked in the dressing room, and Roger's wife, Heather, was doing head massages to everybody in the room. And I'm sitting there, and Roger says, I've got to get, got to get, let Heather give you a massage, John. Well, I knew what was going to And there were no mirrors in this room. And, uh, he's, and I went, no, no, I'm fine. I should be great. should be great. Well, she gets, she gets her hands on my head. She's in my sideburns, in my temples, and I can't see her. I'm looking around the room for her. So I'm thinking, well, her fingers are going to be black. Nothing happened. For some reason, it never came off. No, she never got the black fingers. But that was the worst. You know, imagine meeting an icon, Roger Dodge, for the first time. And, um, and you know, being in a room full. I mean, there was uh, John Lennon's son was there. Julian was there. Yoko was there. Uh, Russ Ballard from Argent, all these people, and there's me thinking that my, you know, quite, my sideburns are going to all going to be revealed. Quite ingenious. What made you think of matches? Did you ever get an appearance in MacGyver? <laughs> I couldn't think of nothing, you know. And I didn't smoke, so it was like, you know, <laughs> buying. And in America, it's all those lighters, so finding matches is not that easy, you know. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. I came across that today, and I, you know what? I just thought it was, oh man, it was priceless, just it's, priceless. I, couldn't write it, you know. You just, like you just, it just happens, you know. So, of all the songs that you've written for other artists, yeah. is there one particular song that's been recorded that you thought to yourself, "That's exactly how I wanted to hear it." Well, and it's strangely enough, you know, uh, I've had a few covers by you know some people that are my heroes, but they have. It's not them that's been the disappointment. The production or the overall picture of it has not. It's, I guess it's like writing your story and then somebody else, you know, not even active, but somebody else, you know, ghost writes it then and it just has a different flavour. But I wrote a song, Meatloaf was going through some really bad times. He went bust when I was living at that house with him way back in the day. He went, I think they call it Chapter 11. And basically you can't believe it, but they were coming, taking cars, taking everything while I was there, you know. And uh, he obviously he came good and bought his way out of it. But I wrote a song called Everything They Said Was True. And it's about an honest man that people should know. And it's like, well, how can you believe anybody else? Just look me in the eyes and tell me everything they said was true. So I wrote this song and it never got recorded by me, Love. And about a year ago, I met this guy and he just, he just does theatres in England. And he's a meatloaf, uh, sort of meatloaf impersonator. And he said, have you got a song I could have? I said, well, there's this song I did for me. Go record it. And he, he recorded it, and it, it sounded exactly like I – it didn't have the meatloaf voice on it, but the production was so Steinman-esque. So I really thought, wow, all these years later – it's funny, isn't it? It wasn't yeah. Tom Jones doing one of mine. Who has, you know, or I don't know, the monkeys or whatever. It was this guy, you know. But he, it, it was just uh, – it was exactly, apart from Meatloaf, I know if Meatloaf had sung it, it would have been another, I would do anything for love. It was that, it's that, it is one of my better songs, but it's been sat gathering dust for, you know, 35 years, you know. So it was a, you know, I, just, I, I mean, it wasn't a hit because the guys just plays 
theatres, you know, but he plays it. It's really weird. And again, you know, when an audience, this is what tells you. So he, he does a meatloaf tribute, and but he's funny as well. So he does a two-hour show. He finishes on Bad Out of Hell. And the audience go crazy. And then they go and bring him. And he comes back home. And then he does my song. And it's a ballad. And the audience cry and stand up and applaud it. And I just think, that's the test. It's not, it doesn't have to be here. I can tell it. It did it, you know, to touch people. And sometimes you don't have to win the Grand Prix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Actually, John, I remember when Meatloaf passed away. And I remember you wrote your very eloquent Thank you. Uh, post on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, re- really, you know, he was an unbelievable singer and a, and a, and a, and a big personality and a, and a very good actor to boot as well. 93 films, I think he did. Wow, you know, a bit yeah. part of that many, you can't believe it. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I think back, I don't even think of the, I only remember our times together off the stage, you know. We were just, you know, I can remember shooting the video for Rock and Roll Mercenaries, which was a lot of fun, but most of it is just him and me, and he was he was very funny and very irreverent. And I think I'm one of the few people he could be, he could be Marvin with, and he don't call me Marvin. He calls himself Marvin Lee, Michael Lee Day, but I think secretly it's actually Marvin. He always used to say, don't call me Marvin. <laughs> Nobody called him any name other than me. Even his kids called him me. His wife called him me. You know, yeah, I mean, boy, oh, boy, what a one-off, eh? You know, a one-off. Yeah. You couldn't compare it to anything. It's like, if it were, it would be an opera singer and this kind of, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know, you know. Yeah. Just a one-off, wasn't it? Just larger than life in every way. John, other than St. Elmo's Four, your songs have appeared in many films, such as Near Dark, but specifically you've written songs for movies. Uh, the Running Man, Three Men yeah. and the Baby. Yeah. When you're writing a song specifically for a film, like you're, yeah. that's your gig, do you approach it differently? Yes, totally. Yeah. I uh, Obviously, St. Elmo's is the only one that was an outsider. But um, yeah, I remember Three Men and the Baby. It was a funny one. That was uh, four writers, I think three Oscar winners, Carol Bersager, Marvin Amish, David Foster and me. And um, Marvin and Carol had apparently spent all the dough they were given to, to write. David phoned me up and said, will you come to Nashville? Well, I've got to finish this tune and will you sing it? So we went over to Nashville and uh, I looked at the, the, the front of the pictures, the front of Three Men and a Baby is like a montage like a revolving door of women coming in and out of that apartment and these kind of three eligible bachelors and then, you know, the baby on the doorstep. Um, so, yeah, so the song was written entirely about that front part of the film. And um, Leonard Nimoy, who was the director, came down at the end of that week and said, I'm sorry, he never heard it. He just said, I'm sorry, I'm going to put bad boys at the front of the film. Uh, bad, bad, bad boys, you know, and you're on the end credits. 
And that was it, because director is God, you know, and Marvin kept going, no, no, no let me let me tell you, it's got to go here. But as big as he was, it, he couldn't uh, he couldn't change his mind. So then it went in the end credits, and ironically, it's not even in its correct form, so it was all cut about. So the song doesn't actually exist in its uh, in its true form, even on the end credits. But it, yeah, that was written for the front of the picture. And uh, The Running Man, I remember... Um, the I was again Los Angeles, and I think uh, I forgot the film company, but they they took me into the preview theater and they showed me Running Man, just me and the producer, and I heard it in my head. As soon as I saw it, I heard, uh, you know, would would you? The original thing I came up with was, would you bet your life on a Running Man? Roll the dice on a one life stand, and that was kind of what I went with. I went over to Munich, met up with Harold Faltermeyer. Harold was hottest thing in the world then he just done Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop so we wrote together in uh, in in his studio in Munich and we wrote that with that lyric would you bet your life on a running man and I thought it's perfect because it's gambling with your life recorded it came back to England and he ran me and he went the film company don't want you to call it running man I don't know what do you mean he said they don't want you to call it running man they, they... so I had to rewrite it so instead of would you bet your life on a run, it was uh, no more lonely nights with a restless heart. Roll the dice, make a brand new start, which is nice, but it's not as powerful as would you bet your life on a run. Because it's a romantic thing, isn't it, as well? Yeah. yeah. So I just, I learned very quickly that film companies have lived with a title for, for maybe five years. So it's a dead sentence by the time the film yeah. comes out and they lose the magic. The running man is such a wonderful emotive thing. And, uh, yeah, I think we lost that, you know, and uh, it was tough, you know, it was, it was tough to see it. But, again, you're talking about pressure, the big pressure with the record label is they would never release any of these movies. So I was having all the, you know, Three Men and a Baby, biggest movie of the year, Atlantic wouldn't release a record because they wanted to me be a rock and roller and they didn't like me being this film composer. So it was kind of tragic it kind of buried my career so i was like you know hot hollywood writer films dead recording artist you know very and, difficult and you see now how, how important soundtracks are to movies like saturday my favorite they released the soundtrack before they even released the movie which exactly. helped the whole thing you know so it's, it's a crazy decision crazy and and you see it now don't you 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 hardly see even a big movie with a great song in it or a, a great theme, even a great theme is hard to come by. Yeah. Yeah, they've got all the big orchestras, but there are songs that you can whistle, themes you can whistle, you know, and my goal is E.T., you know, and, and uh, say, you know, and, and um, I forgot his name, you know, Harrison Ford, um, you know. Um, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. <laughs> Superman, yeah. all those. You, you know, you tell me in the last 10 years a movie thing, you know, that you can remember. Mm. And it's, I, I, there's a few on Oscars, but they're not ones you really remember. So yeah, Miss Abigail, I've spoke about this, you know, many times about like, and I'm not saying we're hark back to the '80s, but for the eight, the, the that period, uh, soundtrack albums for the '80s movies, for whatever reason, were just unbelievable. Yeah, like some of the, you know, mem- you, you wouldn't re- remember songs from movies from the '90s, but. For some reason, yeah. even now, my kids know songs from the yeah. 80s movies. Yeah. It, it, you're correct. Yeah, you know, you know, they'll go watch Top Gun Maverick now and they'll hear the heat is on or Highway to the Danger Zone or whatever, you know, that just fitted, you know, with it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know why. I think certainly in that time, 
you know, I know for a fact that what a film company would do is, and that, and, and that's why you fall off the blackboard. They would have a blackboard in the office, and they'd go, "Who are the hot people?" So they'd approach them to write the, or to perform the song because they wanted two horses pulling the movie. You know, the movie and the and the artist. And once you fall out of the charts, you fall off the blackboard. And that happened to me. I kind of did ten movies back to back, but I wasn't a hit artist anymore. So regardless of writing these themes for hit movies. <clears throat> they weren't hit songs because they weren't released. So you fall off the blackboard, you know, and you're not in people's minds anymore. Uh, it is frustrating, but it, it it doesn't frustrate me as much in, as much as watching, as I say, these great movies that, that you know, the occasional great movie that should have had a wonderful theme or a wonderful song. That's I'm not saying I should do it, but it should have. It should be, yeah. We, we, we went to see Maverick in the cinema and, I was in the sea and it was good, but when them old songs come on from the original top on, oh, you're sitting up yeah. in the sea and it catch your attention. Then the newer songs come on, you're back down, you know? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And it's yeah. nothing to do with nostalgia. It is to do with quality, I think. Yeah, you know? 100%. Because your acid, your acid test is the kids that know nothing of it and they just get it, you know? John, I, I have to go back and, and ask you, I'm a big fan of Star Trek, right? And I, even though he pissed you off, what, what are your memories of Leonard Nimoy? I'll tell you a funny story. I mean, he came in with a hat. He was very cool. I mean, he was as far from Spock as you can imagine. He was just very cool. Didn't He was a man of few words. Marvin Hamlish, big six foot two, three guy, very Jewish. Let me ask you something. Let me ask you. So every, his, I bet he said it 20 times a day. Let me ask you something. Let me, and he would be following Mar, he would be following uh, Leonard around going, let me ask you something. Let me ask you something, Leonard. And one day Leonard went, Marvin, I've got no more answers for you. <laughs> and that's my memory of uh, Leonard. Very good. No more answers. <laughs> no more answers. I'm going to go back to your music videos for a second, John. The videos yeah. themselves were fairly cinematic, you know, leading into the film almost. Was 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 that deliberate? Yes. Uh, I loved film. I'm, I took a year off. I'm making a film right now, I'm, mm-hmm. uh, a, a drama documentary. Uh, but I've loved film since being that little boy singing in the talent shows at the Saturday Cinema. Um the deal I said to Atlantic right at the outset, I'll pay, I'll put the money up for the videos, uh, but I want to make them 35 mil on film with Panavision cameras and lenses. So nearly all my movies, all, all my videos are uh, shot on, like a movie, shot with, with you know, on film, never video, and uh, with a big crew and all the bit. And, uh, you know, I'm still paying for it. I was going to ask, but, yeah, I can only know, imagine the expense know, back then. You know, well, you can imagine, you know, well, I can remember one day, you know, you know, and you know, ninety. We spent ninety-three thousand pounds on two videos in one day. We did "Running the Endless Mile" and "Blame It on the Radio" back to back on two on two so in two days. It's ninety-three thousand pounds in nineteen eighty-six. That's you know, it's a lot of money. And you know, I, obviously, it's at my dollar. I have to pay for that. You know, eventually. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I saw it very early on. It was the beginning of MTV. And uh, I've all, and you'll notice I try not to be in them very much. I'm always trying to look to, so that, you know I was in my thirties and I'm thinking, well, I want to look great, so just keep the great shots and let's go somewhere else <laughs> or onto somebody else, you know. And, uh, but yeah, I loved it. I still love it. Literally, uh, as 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 I've come in here tonight, an hour ago, we were color grading this movie, and it's the work of my life. You know, this is my new. Uh, I believe it's my new Senomos, you know, it's uh, it's the story of um, 
two, two elite soldiers that were severely injured in the line of duty. So they were the peak of their health and their skills. One jumped out of an airplane and the chute didn't open. And the other one was in a troop carrier and the truck turned over, killed two of his friends, rolled over him, he survived. And it's about their way back through sport and through family. But it's told as a movie, even though it's a documentary. So I'm really proud of this thing. And it, it looks like a, it looks like a Hollywood movie. You know? And is it going to be released, John? Have you got it set up to be? Yeah. What, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, we're going to do what I, I did a film uh, about 15 years ago. Got it in the Academy Awards short film, and we 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 were two places off the red carpet. You know where they go, and the winner is. And I, I really got the bug then. And this this so this is my aim. I'm going to do the full campaign this time. So we start with all the film festivals, and we'll just go in there in the drama category, in the documentary category, with a view to trying to get into the BAFTAs. You've got to qualify and into the Academy Awards once more and try and, A, bring a lot of light to this incredible story. And it's all for, all for uh, it's called the Hot Light Fund. So every penny goes to um, goes to the Hot Light Fund for the rehabilitation of service personnel in the UK. Right. And uh, But also it brings light to disablement. And again, it's the full circle of, you know, nearly all my crew are disabled in some way. You know, not, not uh, I haven't got anybody, I've got one in a chair. One's got one leg. God, I've got two in a chair. Yeah. It wasn't intentional. I just realized that a lot of my buddies were disabled. So when we do the credits, there's four minutes of credits with their story in the credits because they deserve it as much as, you know, the people on the film, you know. So it's a, it's a great one. It's called Unconquered. You're looking sharp. You're looking good. You've come so far. And we know how to make the most of who you are. Can I bring you back to yourself again, John? You're such a yeah. selfless guy, I have to say. Everything is about everybody else and how you help everybody else. But I recently watched your TED Talk. Did unscripted, you? powerful, powerful talk. Thank you. What made you do that? Uh, um, I was in the midst of this film and I was work, uh, do, on it every waking hour. And when I get into something, I don't sleep and I'm up at 4 a.m. and whatever. And Doncaster Council, Said a friend of mine said, "Look, we've we've got the uh, the franchise to do a, 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 um, a TED talk from Doncaster. Fifteen speakers. Will you be one of them?" And I really said, "Look, I'm I'm exhausted. I I don't know what I'm going to talk about." And they said, "Look, we'd really like you to do it." So I agreed, and I learned very quickly that this is very 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 organised. They because it's a, a world franchise, they have to see scripts. They, they have people to coach you and how you move and whatever. And I just said, look, I'm really sorry, but I, I, I can't do it. I can't even do auto cue or whatever. I can only speak from my heart. But I'm, I, I'm fairly good at it. So in my shows I talk, uh, you'd have to trust me. 
And um, they said, well, give us an example. So I said, well, all right. So I just talked about the myriad of things. And they went, okay. So they let me do it. And uh, it, that's why it's called unscripted. There was no script. It was. Just, I knew I was going to end up with the Rick story, you know, but I didn't know how deep I was going to go into my early beginnings. And I, um, and I certainly didn't expect to say what I said to you today about, you know, not taking responsibility. The thing in this world, I find it's become very me, hasn't it? You know, let's take a selfie with me. Let's me, me, me. And, <clears throat> well, you'll know from the TED talk, you know, I'm the greatest man in the world at that time, Muhammad Ali said, me, we. And, and that's the greatest problem in the world. It's we. It is only we. And, you know, I treat everybody the same way and everybody treats me, I hope, the same way. It's nothing to do with about people, isn't it? And um, so something said to me, you've got to do this, John. And I thought, boy, oh, boy. I, I felt like I looked at Rex, so he's exhausted. And I went, okay, I'll do it. <clears throat> so I did it, and it was a long day. I mean, they started at 9 o'clock in the morning. I think I went on at 4. So that audience had sat through 14 speeches, you know, and, and wonderful ones as well, and very deep and very taxing and emotionally, so they're exhausted. And I, I'd i watch rehearsals, and the rehearsals would make me cry because they were so wonderful, especially these young kids on these TED Talks. Gives you hope that the world isn't screwed, you know, these young people yeah. are moving forward and doing stuff. So I was proud to be amongst, amongst them, and uh, so that's what made me do it. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think, you know, I always say to people, go, you should write a book. And I'll go, yeah, but I'll sell 50 copies. You know, it's like it, it, you don't understand. You know, you have to have a big platform, don't you, to 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 get it out there. And so, you know, I hope that one day that I thought there was a bit of magic in that TED Talk and a bit of good. And I, I think, it, again, you know, you hope it finds, finds a place. Because a lot of people need that. They're not going to get that encouragement or that other, no. that. That I've been down at war, you know. Very, very poignant. Uh, part of it where you're talking about your memories of your mom cooking and the smells and yeah, it, it, it was it was it was brilliant. It really was, and it was you could see it was from the heart. You could see the message yeah. you were trying to give across. It was it was it was honest. It was in, honest yeah. and ins inspiring. There you go. Yeah. And people can tell when it's not, can't they? Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, they can tell you know you don't have to be clever you know you just it's that human thing they just know you know yeah yeah john you've been yeah. writing recording and performing for yeah. 50 years what, what keeps you going um i don't think i've i don't think i've hit the mark yet i'm still i'm still practicing that guitar <laughs> you, know, and, uh, you know vocally is difficult you can imagine you know singing those songs that i sang were like stratospheric you know key wise and you know and, and and so that frustrates me that you know again you it's like saying to you saying bolt go run the 100 meters tomorrow it would you know if he trained for a year he'd never be able to do it again and he's yeah. off my feet you know and mine was an athletic thing you know it was just so that frustrates me but i think character there's still something to be said it sounds corny i would say if I were to build a platform, my motivation to be able to build a platform is to, uh, yeah, get fulfill fulfillment. But there's a lot to do out there. There really is a lot to do. And I think a bit of good and a bit of whatever. And I still think, you know, it could be a kid. It could be an old woman. They motivate me to say something. And it becomes an everyday 
And I'm that, if I have one strength, it's empathy. And sometimes I'm able to change that empathy into something that moves people. And so I still think I can, I can do that, you know, and, and uh, that's why I keep going, keep Keeping rolling. you going. And this movie killed me, you know, because I did, when I did the tent music, the tent music, I had to show somebody the trailers. So I picked all these great pieces of music, Hans Zimmer, John Williams, James Horner. And then I realized I can't use these pieces. It's got to be all original. So then I had to go and write all these orchestral, beautiful themes. And uh, that became a mountain. You know, I think I've just about done it, but obviously, you know, I didn't have the budget to get the big orchestra and that. But, but even within doing that, I just thought at the end of it, I thought, you know what? You know, you can still do it, but I felt I couldn't. I got to that point where I felt this is a bit off too much because, you know, how can you compete with Braveheart or Warhorse or, you know, even Top Gun, you know? Yeah. And uh, I'm not saying I have, but I'm saying I think I got as far to that as I could get given my resources. Yeah. And, John, when when you're so uh, invested in a project mentally, emotionally, financially. Yeah. That must be all time consuming, is it? It's it's uh, it's damaging. It's damaging. You know, I mean, we're right in the middle of it now it, because because it's just really me and and you know a few pals around me that have you know risen because they're working in a different level to what they used to work in. Because I'm so demanding, I'm making a Hollywood movie in my head. These guys are making corporate videos and doing a you know a thing of a local act. But, you know, they've come with me and together we've, we've made this thing that it's full of love and, and that love translates to skill level too, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it, it just, um, you have, you know, it's, I can't tell you just every step, you know, the, boot, the boots that the soldiers, my sons had to play the soldiers in a battlefield scene and I went 100 miles to buy some authentic boots off of eBay, but to make sure they, they were, because I don't want the military to look and go, they aren't the right yeah. thing. And it's that kind of detail and, yeah. you know, crazy detail, but it, it makes it. So I always, people have always made fun of me. I go, it's the little things. Yeah. It's just the little things in life, isn't it? Sometimes a little thing is like an angry grenade. Going and even if nobody knows that you would know. Yeah, you do. And but <laughs> people get it. You know, you do a little gesture for somebody, don't you? A little yeah. thing. And it's like, you've given them the world. You've done yeah. something. You know, it's a big deal with me, little things. It's not the big, grandiose gestures, you know. Yeah. John, you've worked with some of the biggest names in the industry. Is there anybody out there at the moment that you'd be interested in performing with or playing with or writing for even? I'd love to. Uh, I mean, Stevie Wonder, you know, he's one of the last of the, you know, that's a direct that's a direct connection to God, I think, you know, that something gone into him, you know, and uh, boy, oh boy, I mean, even though he's an older guy now, you know, I mean, it's it's electric, isn't it? You know, so that would be wonderful. That really would be wonderful. But you know, there are there are a lot of people out there. You know, I've been blessed. If I've not worked with them, I've met a lot of my heroes, and you know, and, and the good thing is, you know, they say never meet, but most of them I met have been they've been proper people, you know, and you know. So yeah, but Stevie would just. You know, and it would just, I'd love it if it was just a little pub or a little court, you know, nothing grandiose. Just, you know, they're the greatest gigs, aren't they? You know, in that room. Uh, my friend played a pub the other day. I, and, I, and I said, oh, I'll go. He's going in the hospital. And I said, I'll go. I want, you know, I want to give some support. And I went. 
do you know what? And I got itchy. I was like looking at this <laughs> and it was just thought, yeah, that's it. That's why I did it. It's the, those big arenas are great. You know, thousand lighters going, but that's not it. It really isn't. It's that little pub and that magic, you know, and I'm, and I saw it there. It was funny, you know? So I went thinking, well, my wife said, why are you going? I went, well, I just feel I've got to go. And I came away rewarded, you know, <laughs> But do you ever, uh, yeah, John? Yeah, that's it, man. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever do any impromptu kind of like a pub or you know acoustic sets? I did. <laughs> I, I, funny enough, I did it Saturday, but I didn't do it very well. <laughs> Fortunately, it's nowhere. But but about um, a year ago, I went to see a, a guitar player friend of mine that rarely plays shows. He there's a thing on YouTube with him playing with me. It's called John Part the Comeback. I think it's about '06. This guy, you can't miss him. Just this incredible guitar player. So I went to this show, and it was just in a pub, and they just blew my socks off. It was awesome. And I found myself walking on, and I literally walked on, grabbed the mic out, and I made a song up on the spot about them and the thing, and they just went with it. And I just thought, wow, this is this is, and it's, it's that kid. And I wouldn't do it because I'd be fearful now, thinking, well, you know, I'm 70 years old nearly. Well, I'm 70, you know. It's like, you know, will it hold up? So I was really screaming and going. And it was rock and roll, and it was like, yeah, man, it was like, <laughs> I'm glad it did. But it was like something pushed me on. You know, well, you know where it's great for doing impromptu so gigs and pubs? Who's that? Ireland. And this summer, <laughs> yeah, man. sees John Parr back in Ireland. we got to do it. Yeah, playing at the Forever Young Festival. Are you Forever looking forward Young. to coming over? I am looking forward, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've missed so many fun things I should have done there when I think about my life. And that kind of crack and that kind of... And the quality of the musicianship, you know, guys just with the bodruns and with the fiddles and with the flutes. And, you know, I mean, boy, oh boy, you know, it's that's real music. You know, you could make this happen, John. Yeah, yeah, we can bring it to a good spot. You have no idea the pool we yeah. have over here. Let's have a go. We'll do it then. Let's Deadly. Do it. I need to practice a bit, get the old options going again. But yeah, I'll be, I'll be there. John, we could talk to you all night. We've talked to you for almost an hour. Or more, or more well, it's been it's um, But before we let you go, there's a, there's a question we ask all our guests. And it, you yes. Know, we, we round the interview up, but it's it's last orders at the last chance saloon. You have a pound in your pocket or a euro if you're in Ireland. And there's one song, there's a jukebox in the corner. There's one song John Park can play. What's the last song John Park ever wants to hear? Why Shed a Pound? What a song. Right. Well, John Parr, I'll that, be we'll... crying. I'll be crying on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> with that, we'll play out. And I have to say, John Parr, one of Rock and Roll's really good guys. Thanks so much for coming on. We loved it. We hope you are enjoying yourself. God bless you. I've had so much fun with you. And it's really nice to meet really sincere people. It's wonderful. Just go sleep Turn